Hello, and welcome to the podcast M&A Stories, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. I'm Robert Heaton, and I'm joined by my co-host, Toby Tester. In these podcasts, Toby and I share our experiences on various projects that we've both been involved in over the course of our careers, talking about things that have gone well, things that didn't go too well, and things that just completely failed. The purpose of this is that we're hoping that our listeners will learn some valuable lessons from those experiences and that those lessons can be taken forward into your M&A projects. We hope you enjoy listening, so let's get this podcast underway. Hey, good morning, Toby. How are you today? Oh, great, great, Robert. Yes, it's uh, Monday time, our uh, uh, podcast. I'm having a little bit of a look, actually, up here in Sydney. You're down in Melbourne, but it's a pleasant day. I think it's got, it might rain later, but, you know, very pleasant enough and um, all ready and keen for another week. And so what a great way to kick off a week with uh, a podcast between uh, the two of us, yeah. sharing our respective stories, And because we've done this a few times now. And it's the extraordinary thing about M&A in itself that it, it, it is an amazing story generator. And there are so much in it. And I think, and I think it's because M&A in itself, and that's perhaps the reason why we're so attracted to it. It, it is a, a very dramatic thing that happens in organizations. And invariably, when you do this sort of thing, there's always an element of drama. And hopefully that's what we're doing here is, you know, letting our listeners know about the dramatic aspects about M&A. Yeah. But as a result of that drama, what lessons can you draw from that? No, I'd agree. And the other thing I would say, of course, is that the great thing about an M&A deal, there isn't any part of the business that's untouched. Thanks. So, you know, to use one of your No phrases, stone unturned. There's a treasure trove of, of um, material in there for us. Last week... Just to recap, we I, I did a podcast, told a story about a deal with no purpose. And yeah. I think that struck a nerve, by the way, because I noticed that <laughs> people can reflect a lot on that one to say that, oh, yeah, actually, I've been involved in a deal with no apparent purpose. And so I thought that was a good experience. And, you know, it was great telling that story. Now, Robert, now it's over to you and you've got a story well, I was just thinking back to last week, actually, and this one's almost a deal with no value. Well, <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, this was a technology business. I'm talking, we're back in 2003 here, right? right? Uh, a well-known global technology vendor had identified this acquisition and they saw it as a steal. They thought this was really just going to be an easy pick. Well, yeah. was the idea anyway. Okay. Um, and what was attractive about this was that the core product of this particular software business mm. would very easily complement the existing software products that, that this, this global technology business already had. Right. Now, on top of that, it was described as a steal for, for several reasons. Mm. First of all, the product advanced functionality, great. Yeah. Secondly, this business had an aging, it was a family business. Hmm. Now, I know you've got alarm bells ringing in your head, Toby. Well, I'm interested. <laughs> I'm interested. It sound, you know, originally, let me, let me just recap in the story. We talked about the steel, yeah. but I'm getting down to the problem here. You're, you're going to come down to, but it wasn't quite what it, you know, what it seemed at first. Yeah. 
uh, one of one of several. But in this yeah. case, uh, the the founder of the business was uh, well past retirement age, right. um, and there seemed to be a view in the industry that the remaining family members in the business weren't interested, and and that if somebody came along with an offer, they they'd snap their hand off. Okay. Right. The other thing was that this had been a four hundred million dollar business five years ago, right? Uh, but so, so nineteen ninety eight period. Yeah. But between then and two thousand and three, they'd fallen off the edge of a cliff. So they, the, their revenue had dived. Profitability was in the low single digits. Right. Okay. Which is unheard of for a software company. Right. Um, the revenue stream was being heavily supported by services and right. by customers paying their annual maintenance. Right. So basically, it sounded like I had a core customer base, but that's what was really keeping the business going. Not, not actually winning new business. It was like an existing customers. And then, of yep. course, you have um, customers start peeling off over time and yep. revenue starts going down. There were, new, there were new customers coming through, but not at the rate that you would expect. Yeah. Uh, and I'll go into that a little bit in a bit further detail. But I'm talking particularly about the due diligence aspect today. Mm. And I'm going to focus just on the organizational culture and the operating style, because <clears throat> those were the two factors that caused us to pull the pin. And what I'm going to throw a bit of a challenge out here to anyone that's listening, just to reflect on whether they've come across similar experiences in things that they've done. And and, and I'm just going to put a, a waiver on that and say, and by the way, I hope you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> so when you say that, Robert, it's more like um, going through something that was seemingly was good at first, at first appearance. But as you even began to sort of go into due diligence, you found that you didn't really want to touch this one with a barge pole. Yeah, it was. It, what was what was really interesting was we we made the approach, yeah. right, and we got a very positive reception, both from the management team and the founder. Hmm. Uh, they were proud of what they built, hmm. right, but they were oblivious to what they built. You know that saying that you can't see the wood for the trees. Hmm. Hmm. That that was the the case here. Uh, anyway. They, they literally opened the doors and allowed myself and a couple of colleagues to spend two whole weeks with them, mm. part of which would be to attend a quarterly business review. Right. And we were told two weeks was necessary because the quarterly business review was a three-day event. Okay, that sounds... <laughs> um, wow, okay, all right, three days. I'm used to quarterly business, business reviews that can go on for almost all of a day. I have as well. But three days. That sounds a bit of a marathon. Okay. Yeah. All right. But anyway, there you go. We were invited to to visit with them, and we we duly turned up. And um, I've got to tell you that, and I don't know if you've done this, Toby. But as mm. soon as you walked through the front door of their reception, you could feel the atmosphere. Well, yeah, sometimes you can feel the atmosphere in simple things like the uh, furnitures, like, uh, you know, 30 yep. or 40 years old. I mean, that, that will tell you something pretty fast. <laughs> well, that was that was part of that. But it was, yeah. also, it was just no energy. 
Yeah. It's well, if it's definitely flat. silent, you know. Yeah, yeah. It felt flat. Hmm. Um, but anyway, we were then collected from reception and we were given a guided tour right around the whole building. Hmm. Right? And, you know, yes, the office fit out hadn't been changed for the last 20 years. We were brought into the sales office, big area, right? And it was silent. And I mean silent. There was <laughs> not a word. You couldn't hear a phone call. Were the salespeople there? Yeah. Yeah. So they were, they were there. They weren't actually out in the field then. So they're actually in no. the office. Oh, okay. Some people out in the field, but the, the, the yeah. sales office itself, normally when you walk into the sales office, it's pretty vibrant and there's stuff going on. And Oh, yeah. Know, yes. This one was just silent. Right. And then the best bit was they said, oh, we'll, we'll take you over to marketing. And marketing was actually in a separate building at the opposite end of the business. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Now, yeah, it's, now, interesting. it's funny because usually sales and marketing are joined at the hip. So um, <laughs> obviously not in this case. This one was a surprise. Do you know what, what they told us? They told us that the reason why sales and marketing were at opposite ends of the business was mm. because sales was managed by the founder's son. Yeah. And marketing was managed by a stepdaughter, and they didn't like each other. <laughs> that was right. the rationale that we were given. Right. I take it that there was not much coordination there between the two then. No. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, over the course of the next three days, or the first week, we uncovered a whole pile of other factors. The company hadn't held a formal board meeting for 12 years. That intrigues me, that does. How can they even function without having a formal board meeting? They, they'd made the statutory declarations that a board meeting had taken place. Right. But there was no structure. There was no board structure. There was The CEO wasn't even invited to board meetings. That's, that's interesting, Robert. You know what that tells me? That tells me that there effectively was no governance going on here. It was. There was silch. Yeah. Um, you know, it was a, a most discussions or decisions were made around the dining table with the family, right? Despite this being a four hundred million dollar business, right. now the CEO's office, I reckon they should have built a revolving door into it because it was a revolving door. They'd changed CEO seven times in the past nine years. Okay, and I take was the CEO like an not not a family member or no. was it? No, CEO was a, an employee. All right, okay. Right. Similarly, there was no regular leadership meetings. Right. Um, and the CFO, mm. you know, hey, hey, you've got a business that's where revenue's going off the edge of a cliff mm. and productivity is in the low single digits. And the CFO seemed to spend most of his time out on his farm. And monthly financial statements basically got produced, delivered out to the farm, and the CFO and founder would go through them, and I'm going to use these inverted commas, adjust the financial statements before they were released. Right, okay. Whatever they might have agreed with or not agreed with or whatever, just made up numbers from what, yeah. what it sounds like. Okay. Yeah. And as you imagine, it's a, it's a family business, so it's not public. Yep, yep. Right? And then there was no me real mechanism for management decisions either. Okay. Uh, you know, sometimes 
you get people, and, and I don't want to be derogatory to the, uh, our more older citizens, but mm, you'll mm. often meet someone that will say, when I was your age, you know, we used to do this and it worked really, really well. Yeah. Well, the, the founder was renowned for doing that. Okay. And he would walk around the building regaling senior managers with his yeah. philosophy, right? Uh, and, and woe betide you if you didn't then suddenly come up with a, a, a management initiative that was based on his sort of soothsaying. It's, it's interesting as we talk through this, uh, Robert, because obviously, you know, I've had similar experience with family businesses before. And yeah, I mean, um, so all this sort of like, it resonates with uh, experiences I've had in the past as well. Yeah. Now, now let me go on to the quarterly business review. So okay. this, this took place in the first three days of the second week we were there. Right. right. Three regional VPs flew in. And the first half an hour was spent putting up the financial results. Right. Right. And the CFO did a walk through those. Nobody was allowed to ask questions. And nobody seemed to take any interest. It was almost like, oh, 30 minutes up yet. Yeah, you know, right, okay, that's the CFO done, tick. <laughs> okay. And then, and then the remaining two and three quarter days <clears throat> were spent with every section delivering a one-hour presentation about what great programs they were putting in place or thinking about putting in place. Uh, and then as soon as the presentation was finished, everybody started arguing over trivia or trying to score some sort of interdepartmental points in front of the family. Mm. And I've, I've got to tell you, it was as exciting as being held captive for 72 hours to watch paint dry. Okay. <laughs> it was an absolute disaster. There was no mm. value in this three-day exercise mm. at all. Right? Yep. Now, we were there to do due diligence. And... Towards the end of the second week, we actually sat down and we said, well, it, it, it doesn't matter because we could just extract the product, uh, bring a few key people along with us, and bingo. Yep. So corresponding with the QBR, my other two colleagues spent the, the rest of that second week with product development, mm. which surprisingly wasn't managed by a family member. But despite thinking that was a good thing, it, the feeling didn't last too long. What we found out was there was no such thing as a core product. Right. There were, there were actually 57 versions of the core product. We jokingly started referring to this as the Heinz project. <laughs> Sounds like they had no fundamental core product there's always I, I know how you do this sort of thing it sounds like they yeah. had no yeah. concept or idea actually how you manage a core product look in the software industry you you need a product development strategy right yeah. you, you've got a core product you add functionality that to that product over yeah. time to meet market demands and you mm. deliver upgrades to your customers once or twice a year as at best mm. right now, in this case, there was no product development strategy. Yeah. Uh, product management was simply at the beck and call of sales. And don't forget, yeah. that was managed by the son of the founder. Yeah. Right? And, and they would just announce that they'd sold the software to company X 
but they'd agreed to include some specific customer modifications, mm. usually at no cost. So development were then told that they had to go and develop these modifications. Mm. Services would be told that that quoted the customer standard implementation fees, but the modifications would need to be installed at no cost to the customer. Mm. And then better still, development was then required to provide ongoing support. So mm. you had 57 variations of the product. You had technical services being abused to implement the product. They weren't recovering their costs, which, you know, yeah. and, and, and then on top of that, you've got to support it. Yeah. You know, uh, it's just ridiculously crazy. I mean, you, you can start to see why the revenues and profitability were going yeah. in the direction. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and, and it didn't end there. Mm. One of the guys that was with us was was a seasoned CIO. Yeah. And he did what we were talking about earlier, which was he got straight into the code to have a look at the quality and consistency of the code that this software was built on. And the answer to that was that it was a very poor and inefficient code structure. That was, well, that doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, no, no. And the the coding that had been used was so old-fashioned, mm. right, it was inefficient in 2003's marketplace. Mm. There was no version control. Right. And so... so You've you know, seen despite, enough, eh? <laughs> Well, despite, despite our view that we could just, you know, grab the product, get out of there with some key people, and it would still be yeah. a worthwhile position. Yeah. Once you looked at the code and the software itself, it was just a basket case, right? And we, we just got on the phone. We had a phone call with our CEO and CFO. Yeah. Uh, and literally... Following that phone call, myself and my two colleagues were heading to the airport and on the next flight home. So, look, let's uh, let's go back to the comfort of your regular corporate life, and there you are, back back in the office. Well, I've got to tell you, the very next week was as different as chalk and cheese. It just happened to be our own quarterly business review, and uh, I, I was on the agenda to pre present our findings and recommendations, just like everybody else in the business. And the, the immediate thing I want to talk about is that the, just a massive difference. So in, in our business at that time, whenever you got up to do a presentation to the leadership team, irrespective of how senior you were, mm. you were only allowed five slides. And so compared to the weird experience of watching paint dry, the week before, uh, I, I was now having to present something on those five slides. And I, I think there's a couple of things here. First of all, it was weird from my point of view, because for the first time, I was actually telling the leadership team why I didn't want to do something <laughs> when every, everybody else was wanting to put projects up and so on. Yeah. Uh, now, what I want to do is I want to cover those five slides because I've used this same technique Many times since, yeah. the five slides that you had to have were, were simply this. What do you want to do? How much is it going to cost? What's the benefit to the business? What's the timeline to getting results? And how much risk is involved? Yep. 
that was it. Very good, very succinct. It, it was clear, straight to the point. You could make a management decision off the back of it and to avoid people cramming loads and loads of unnecessary information into these things, yep. each slide could only have a maximum of eight lines. Right, okay. Right? So it's a discipline that forced you to convey your message accurately and quickly. And it, and it was it was a good one. Good. But as I say, it was it was such a chalk and cheese experience from where, <laughs> where I've been the two weeks before. Yep. And so I, I I think generally there's some good lessons came out of this exercise. So so you, you put your slides together and you said don't go ahead on 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 this particular yep. Uh, deal. Yep. And so I take it that they agreed with your decision and basically cut off ties in terms of going any further. Yeah. Well, in actual fact, we. Um, so as I said earlier, the, the CEO and CFO had already been involved in right. that decision and, right. and, and pulled the pin. Right. Okay. Uh, the company had already been advised that we weren't proceeding any further. This was really part of our governance to ensure Fine. the rest of the leadership team was were aware brought yep. to speed. Yeah. I get you. Okay. Yeah. Good. So you know, uh, Robert, it's an interesting experience what you what you've had here about, you know, so often is the case that, you know, what might look good on paper is or initially is a is a good deal. But when you delve just a little bit and you start looking under the covers where you say, oh no, run a mile. And this is obviously one of those situations where you do run a mile. So I, I think it's interesting. I would imagine there are some good lessons that you've learned from this experience. And what, what would those be? Look, uh, and some of them are obvious, but I think first and foremost, what might look good on the surface doesn't necessarily look good in detail. Okay. And, and as you and I know, it's always worth looking under the covers and getting into the detail. Yep. Because that's, that's where the value is or isn't. Mm. This was software industry, so I've always banged on about paying attention to IP. Yep. And, and it is critical in any acquisition, mm. but in the, in, in the technology industry, you really need to get down to the quality of the core code. Indeed, indeed. You're not in, it's, it's interesting. Not only do you need to understand the IP, you've got to make sure you can actually own it as well. Correct. And, 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 and locate it. Yep. And, and that is a problem with the tech industry because software yeah. is intangible. Yeah. The other thing is, corporate culture should always be a good sounding bell for post-deal challenges, mm. right? Particularly if you're dependent on key people in, in the, the acquisition for yeah. delivery of IP, right? Yep. So, so always put culture high on your list <laughs> for DD. Yep. Right. Uh, and then. When it's a family-owned business, always add that extra level of attention. Hmm. Going back to the detail again, the, the last lesson I think is, you know, when you get to a point where something clearly needs to be in the too hard basket, the best advice you can give anyone after that is retreat and count your blessings. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good, Robert. You know, um, that, those are really good lessons, you know, from an interesting um, deal that, in actual fact, had you gone again, gone ahead, it actually would have been an absolute disaster. Yeah. So it's good to be able to sort of call these out, you know, well ahead of time and not uh, invest any more effort. It's interesting. We've had this story, Robert, and I think the turn will come around to me next week. But, you know, look, 
another great story. We'll have another one next week, another M&A story, and I look forward to talking about it again. So it's goodbye from me. And it's bye from me.